before Thursday hits, uh, Thanksgiving is not a Christian holiday. That's, that's not what it is. But uh, I'm talking about it because it is a great opportunity for us to talk about the importance of giving thanks. Because it is an incredibly important thing. Um, it's a biblical thing. And it's really important because I do think oftentimes we struggle with entitlement. Entitlement, I feel like, is, you could say it's the opposite of thanksgiving. You give thanks when, you know, somebody has helped you out. Somebody has done something for you that they didn't have to, that you didn't deserve or earn. They did it out of their own volition because they wanted to help you with something. So because of that, you thank them. You express your thanksgiving. You express your indebtedness to that person for what he or she has done. This is different from social politeness. Nowadays, like, you know, you could pay for something, you could pay for a service, and you still say thank you out of social politeness, even though you paid for it. But the deeper heart of thanksgiving, the meaning of it is you, you have become indebted to somebody because of what that person has done for you. So you, you express thanksgiving for that. You say thank you so much for doing something for me. Now, the opposite of that is entitlement, where we think that we are owed something. You did something for me. I don't need to thank you because you really should be doing that for me. I am owed that. Now, um, not all entitlement is bad, right? If you work a job, you're entitled to get paid. If you buy a car, you're entitled to drive it home and use it, right? That's, that's normal. But I'm talking about the kind of entitlement where we think that we are owed something when we really aren't. And this pops up all the time. Like perhaps you have a friend or had a friend in your life who, because you were friends, basically thought that he or she was entitled to all of your time. You ever had a friend like that? You know, it's like, we're friends. We're BFF. So now we hang out every single day. And if you hang out with anybody else, this friend gets jealous, gets upset. Lord have mercy the day you get married, if you get married. <laughs> it's like, what? You're going to hang out with your spouse instead of me, right? We have friends like that. And they don't understand that, no, you are not my only friend, or hopefully not. And you are not entitled to all of my time just because we are friends. You can have some of my time, but I can have other friends. Or maybe we experience this in marriage where, you know, maybe some of you can relate to this, but, you know, when I go and I, you know, I, I watch the kids or I take them out to do something or I, I wash the dishes and, you know, I want my wife to put on a parade for me for, for doing those things, right? Because I am I'm just such an amazing husband. And in fact, it's like, uh, no, you are the father of these children as well. You live in this house as well. These are things you're supposed to be doing. So yes, I'm not entitled to the parade. I'm maybe to the socially polite thank you, but these are things I'm supposed to be doing already because I'm a father, I'm a husband, and I live in that home. Or how about entitlement from our kids? Needing to remind my kids every once in a while that video games, 
iPads, these things are not a right. They are a privilege. They are not a constitutional, inalienable right of childhood. They are a privilege. But sometimes if you infringe, if you think you infringe upon that privilege and take it away, the kids are like, to the Bastille! It's like, no! What are you thinking, you terrible father? No, 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 no. That's not a privilege. That is a privilege. That's not a right. There's this entitlement that is there. Entitlement is, is all around us. And we can struggle. We can have entitlement filter into our relationship with God as well. And it can become a problem in our relationship with God that can really affect our walk with God. So the question is, what I want to talk about this morning is, how do we go from an attitude of entitlement to an attitude of gratitude? How do we go from an attitude of entitlement with God where we feel like God owes us to an attitude of genuine gratitude and thanksgiving to God? That's what I want to talk about, and I'm going to be looking at Luke 17 today, verses 7 through 19, and um, I am going to break this up as we go along. Let's look here first, verses 7 through 10. This is Jesus speaking. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, Jesus here gives a, um, an illustration, a parable, that uh, was very easy for the people to, to understand. And, and what he was basically saying was, hey, if, think about this, guys. If one of you is in the privileged position of having a servant, having somebody that works for you, that you pay to, to, to work for you, or maybe somebody that you have purchased and they are a bondservant of yours, and this was a system that existed back then that we talked about, that maybe a third of the people of Corinth and in different places were involved in, were participating in. If any of you have a servant in this position, and he's out there plowing the fields all day. Is it okay for him to come in and say, Woo, master, it was hot out there today. Man, I plowed that field all day long. Time for me to come back and kick it. Kick off my shoes, sit down at the dining table, eat some good grub, and then relax next to, next to the fireplace with some, some, some eggnog and hot apple cider. Is that, is that what you would say to him? Would you say, sure, man, thank you so much for working out there in the field for me today. Yes, relax, kick it. Absolutely not. What would you say? You would say, I'm hungry. I know you've been out there in the field all day, but prepare me dinner. And then after I have eaten, 
you can go and make food for yourself and eat. And everybody in the crowd would have said, obviously, obviously, that's what you do. Why is that? Why is it so obvious? Because the person is a servant. That's his role. That's his position. That's what he's paid to do. That's the the position he ended up in. He is a servant. And the master doesn't need to thank the servant because that's what the servant is supposed to do. It was the nature of his role to do that. So the master doesn't need to thank the servant for plowing the field or making dinner or doing any of those things. It's his role. At home, I don't need to thank my kids for obeying me. When I say to them, stop eating that candy, your teeth are going to fall out. Stop, put, put the iPad away, that's too much, and they obey me. Put down that sharp stick, this is not going to end well. Y- yes, th- don't, no, don't eat that, it looks poisonous. I don't need to thank them every time they do one of these things because it's in the nature of the role. They're my kids. I'm the father. They obey me because of the role. Now, don't get me wrong. On Father's Day, if they make me a nice, beautiful card and everything, I'm like, thank you. Thank you guys so much. Yes, that's, that's absolutely normal and things that we should do. But on a daily basis, if I ask them to do some chores, to help out around the house, to do these different things, to listen to me, I don't need to thank them for that because that is the nature of the father-child relationship. It is the nature of the master-servant relationship here as well. That's what Jesus was saying to these people. Now, the reason he says that is because this is also our relationship with God. God is the master. We are the servant. God is the creator of all things. He has given us life and breath and everything that we have, and we are simply servants. This is why um, at the end of the day, what Jesus says we should say, he says, so you also when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. After a lifetime of serving God, if that is what you do by the grace of God, at the end of a lifetime of serving God, we cannot come to God and say, you owe me. You should thank me. Our end, our words should be, Lord, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty, what we should do. Now, I know that that sounds kind of like harsh, right? But it's not. Brothers and sisters, and this is something we need to, we need to understand. And this is a truth that we need to have sink in. It's that God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. Nothing. Um, He doesn't owe us a single thing. Joel Green 
the theologian commentator, he said this about this passage. He said, in this script, this passage in Luke, thanks, saying thank you, would not refer to a verbal expression of gratitude or social politeness, but to placing the master in debt to the slave. And the master is never indebted to the slave. God doesn't owe us anything. Brothers and sisters, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but if you look in the Bible, you will not find one instance of God thanking us, thanking his people. You will find passage upon passage of God loving his people, God saving his people, God uh, defending his people, God being a refuge for us. But there is not a single passage in there where it says God thanks us because God is never indebted to us. I double-checked yesterday. I went on BibleGateway.com. I typed in the word thank with parentheses around it. No, no, with, with quotation, with uh, quotes around it so that thank would come up, thanks would come up, thankfulness would come up, thanksgiving would come up, thanking would come up. A hundred and something quotes, not a single one of those quotes is God thanking us, his people. The large, large majority of them are us thanking God because we're indebted to him. And a small number of them from the Gospels are Jesus thanking the Father because in his human form as well, he was dependent and reliant upon the Father and he thanked him. But there is not one instance of God thanking us. Is that because God is ungrateful for all that we do? No. It's because he's not indebted to us. The crazy thing is, God still chooses to reward us when we obey him and honor him, even though everything we do is by his grace. He still graciously chooses to reward us when we choose to obey him and follow him. But that is different, and we need to understand it is not the same as him being indebted to us. He owes us nothing. In fact, brothers and sisters, what do we actually deserve? We deserve, because of the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that has been passed down to us through all time, because of the sin that we are born in, and because of the sin that we begin sinning as soon as we are developmentally able to do, we deserve God's punishment, His justice, and His wrath enacted upon us. That is what we actually deserve. Romans says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every single one of us have sinned we were born in sin and we continue to sin and we have fallen short of God's glory. We didn't make it. We do not deserve to be in his presence. John said, whoever believes in him, Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Brothers and sisters, friends, you don't start out neutral in life. You're not born neutral with a clean slate. 
pure and holy with no sin. No, we are born with original sin. We don't start off neutral and then one day when you were two and you grabbed that rattle from the other kid and bonked them over the head with it, out, oh, you sinned. Now we know which camp you're in. No, we, were, we started off as sinners, born in sin, conceived in sin. And the sin only takes time to be manifested in how we live and what we do. We deserve eternal punishment in separation from God if it were not for the gracious gift of His Son, Jesus Christ, dying upon the cross. And through faith in Him, we can experience forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, we are not owed anything. We are not owed good health. We are not owed this kind of weather in the middle of November. Californians, take notice, this is not normal. This is a gift. We are not owed a home or a place to live that is warm and clean and doesn't leak. We are not owed three meals a day so that we are not hungry. I am not owed my beautiful, loving wife. I am not owed my two great kids. I am not owed peace and safety. I am not owed a stable society so that I can pursue the American dream or my leisure. I am not owed any of these things. I am owed nothing by God. We live in a world that has been broken and ravaged by sin. And we were born as sinners, conceived as sinners. We are owed nothing by God. This is why one of my spiritual heroes, Hudson Taylor, missionary, one of the first um, Western missionaries to China, who suffered tremendously as he served the Lord on the mission field for his whole life out there in China. He experienced uh, persecution, riots. He, him, his wife, were beaten and bloodied. He, he lost his, his, uh, one of his daughters on the mission field who died out there. He suffered tremendously in his life, but at the very end of his life, he said, I never made a sacrifice. I never made a sacrifice. Because we deserve nothing that we received. And even the most passionate, heartfelt service that we render unto God, even service in the face of great persecution, is a joy and a blessing and something we don't even deserve to do. But God has given us the privilege of serving Him. Brothers and sisters, it's important for us to know our role. At the end of the day, we should say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Now, there are, and I'll get a little practical here, there are three, three consequences that I want to point out of entitlement with God. If we have an attitude of entitlement where God is indebted to us for something, there, there are three consequences that I want to point out. The first consequence is compartmentalization. Compartmentalization. What I mean by that is we, um, we compartmentalize our lives 
and we say, well, you know, God, um, I've, uh, I've gone to church this week. M- maybe you've gone to community group. I've done my time for you. Now the rest of my time is mine. God, I've uh, given an offering to you financially, and now the rest of my finances are mine. Where we, we, we compartmentalize things because we feel like we've given to God. We've done our time. We've given our share, and therefore, God, you're good. I've satisfied you, and everything else is mine. We become part-time servants of God. Stevie Wonder, if you listen to his music, was okay with a part-time lover, but our God is not. He wants his bride, his church, to be his and his alone. And that means our lives are not to be compartmentalized, but all of our time, all of our finances, all of our energy, everything belongs to God, and we see ourselves as 24-7, 365 stewards of this life that God has given us. A symptom that you might be struggling with this is potentially if you leave church on Sunday and then God disappears from your life until the following Sunday or until the next time you're in some church event or maybe community group. But there really is no trace of God in your workplace, in your conversations, and how your decisions are made, and even in your home. God's not really there. That might be a sign that you compartmentalized God. Maybe you give an offering to God, and then rest of the time, everything that you do with your money is about you, what you can enjoy, what you can do with it, the things that you want. These are signs that maybe you are compartmentalizing your life and that you've become a part-time servant of God. We think this way because we think we're, once I've given some of my life to God, I'm entitled to the rest of it. And this is a sickness, this is a disease that is very much infiltrated into American Western church culture. I come and I do my time and then I'm entitled to the rest. That's entitlement. We don't see ourselves as servants of God 24-7, 365, every day and year of our lives. The second consequence of entitlement is a license to sin. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that there can be this temptation where we think, God, because I serve you and I sacrifice and, and I obey in X, Y, Z areas of my life. Maybe, maybe I, I work really hard for you and look at all the things that I'm doing for you, God. God, you understand I deserve to let off some steam in other areas of my life. You'll understand, won't you, God? God, I, I do so much for you and, and, and I'm so stressed that you'll understand if I, if I find release in pornography because I find some type of release from my anxieties and my stress 
in that. God, you'll understand because I do so much for you. You'll understand, Lord God, I'm, I'm so busy trying to be a good, good, good spouse or, 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 or busy with church that, you know, I, maybe I drink a little bit too much because it relaxes me. God, I do so much for you, Lord, but, you know, it's understandable if I gossip a little or talk about some people because it's in the name of this ministry and I'm so busy doing all this stuff for you. I just gotta, I gotta tell somebody about stuff going on with people and things that I'm doing and involved in and oh my gosh, can I tell you what I've been so busy with helping this person and maybe it's gossip. We feel this license to sin because God, I'm doing so much for you in this area of my life, it covers over. It's a big rug that I've made for you, so let's sweep a little stuff under it, God. It'll cover it. We do this, don't we? You know, I know I've brought up Ravi, Ravi Zacharias multiple times, you know, in the past year, but I mean, bringing up again, famous apologist, you know, did so much apologetic ministry for God, or, or, or at least we think it was for God, or we don't, I don't know at this point, but in the 12-page report by Miller and Martin, the investigation into these accusations of him sending explicit messages with women from massage parlors, a massage parlor that he owned, and inappropriate actions and travel and sexual interactions, and he was a married man. It says at one point, one of the, the women testified saying that Ravi called her his reward for living a life of service to God. And he referenced the godly men in the Bible with more than one wife. Brothers and sisters, don't think that this can't happen. The more you do, and, and, and I'm not saying it's bad to do a lot for God, but when, when it's disconnected from God, when our heart's not right, when it becomes entitlement, be careful lest the license to sin rear its ugly head. I can do it too. I can feel less concerned about sin or lukewarmness in my life because I am so quote-unquote busy as a pastor. Oh, God, you understand, I, if I don't read the Bible as much, I mean, I study it for practice, you know, the sermon so much. God, Lord, you'll understand if I'm not as on fire for you about with my relationship with you during the week because look I'm, I'm so on fire when i'm preaching up here on sunday look at how on fire i am you'll understand god it can happen to me it can happen to you it can happen to any of one of us brothers i'm not saying that there aren't times where maybe we need some rest or a little sabbath in our life but we have to be careful that rest turning into into slumber slumber turning into hibernation and hibernation turning into cryopreservation and we're just frozen there until jesus comes back waiting for him to thaw us out of our our dead spiritual relationship with him waiting for the second coming of christ when jesus will thaw me out so that i can frolic about heaven and be with god no our we have no license to sin we are not entitled to sin because of how much we, quote-unquote, do for God. Third and lastly, it can result in bitterness. Bitterness, how? Well, bitterness specifically in this way. What I want to talk about is that, you know, 
we can feel, when we serve God, we can feel entitled to see the fruit of our labors. And if you don't see the fruit of your labor, maybe you'd be tempted to feel bitter about that. God, I did all this for you. Yeah, what, was the, what came of it? Nobody listened. Nobody, nobody cared. Nothing, nothing really re- was resulted from this. What was that all about, God? We can feel bitter. Maybe some of you here today feel that bitterness because you gave, you gave a lot even to the Lord or to a ministry or to a church and for whatever reason it didn't work out. Maybe you scattered your seed on on, on hard ground and and there wasn't that response. Maybe you were in an abusive church and in an unhealthy environment and the the things and, and everything fell apart because of that, because of factors beyond your control. And I understand that that can be hurtful, but it's resulted in this bitterness within you. And I want to ask you, lovingly, I want to ask you lovingly, were you serving God or were you serving yourself? If you were serving yourself, then you'll be bitter because you didn't get to see what you wanted to see, what you expected to see. But brothers and sisters, if you were serving God, you have this ability, this grace to be able to say, God, you saw everything I did for you. Regardless of the outcome, I did it for you. I was not serving man, I was serving you, God. And regardless of the outcome, you know my heart, you know why I was doing it, and I have offered that to you. That's freedom. God has seen what you have done for him, and it has, by the grace of God, been credited to your account because he rewards those who serve him regardless of the outcome. Brothers and sisters, this happened to so many of the prophets in the Old Testament where God sent them to prophesy to the nation of Israel again and again and again, saying, turn back from your sin. Turn away from your sin. Go back to God. And you know what they said to the prophets? They said, up yours! (laughs) Again and again and again. And many of these prophets never saw real revival that lasted in their lives. Jeremiah even said, oh God, you deceived me, and I was deceived. God didn't lie to Jeremiah, but when he was saying that, what he meant was, you called me to go and preach to these people, but they're obstinate. They will not listen. I thought that they would turn, but they didn't. That was Jeremiah. Many prophets were called to this type of ministry. Many Christians serve God and do not see the fruit of their labors. Maybe the fruit is for another generation or maybe the fruit is only for God to see. When we think that we're entitled to certain results, it can result in bitterness. Entitlement is dangerous 
we are only unworthy servants. Now, I want to go on here because the next passage, I think, also adds a lot to this. Um, Verse 11 to 13. This is right after the passage I just read. On the way to Jerusalem, he, Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. In other words, he was between Gentile territory, the Samaritans, and Jewish territory, Galilee. He's threading the needle here. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Leprosy was a terrible disease back in those days. It's still terrible today, but there was not the medical treatment that there is today. Leprosy was like a death sentence back then. You, You got cast out of society. Even your own family didn't want you living with them. You became religiously, ceremonially unclean. Leprosy was a terrible, terrible thing. You were the living, you were the walking dead if you were leprous back then. And the crazy thing about these 10 lepers that Jesus saw in between Gentile territory and Jewish territory is that these 10 lepers were a mixed group. These 10 lepers that were together, living together, were Jew and Gentile mixed together. Now think about that for a moment. Samaritans and Jews do not mix. Oil and water, they hated each other. They hated each other. Jews viewed Samaritans as sellouts to the true religion, to the true God, and Samaritans hated the Jews just as much for viewing them as sellouts. It was a deep enmity that they had between them. They don't hang out. This is why when Jesus went to the Samaritan place, John chapter 4, to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and talked to her, the disciples were were, were amazed at the, what are you doing? What are you doing, Jesus? They don't hang out. But here they hang out. Why? Why? Because, who cares? Jew, Gentile, Galilee, Samaria, when you are a leper, nobody else would be with them. The only people that they could be with were other lepers. And when you are that low, when you come to that place, nothing matters anymore. They were in a desperate, desperate situation. And they were there calling out to Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Think about this. A situation so desperate that even Jew and Samaritan will live together. Brothers and sisters, this is meant to show us something. Brothers and sisters, we, humanity, is in far worse condition than these lepers because of our sin. You think leprosy is bad. They suffered from a skin disease. We suffer from a sin disease. And it is far, far worse. That is what we need to understand here. This is who we are in this story. We're not just suffering from a skin disease. We're suffering from a sin disease. And we are lower because this is something that has not just infiltrated our flesh, but our soul, our spirit. That's who we are. Now, 
As we read on, there are two ways things can go here. I'm going to read 14 to 18. When he saw them, when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. The Jews heading towards Jerusalem and the priests there, uh, the, the, the Samaritans heading towards the Samaritan country and their own priests and their own religious system there so that the priests could look at them and declare them clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Brothers and sisters, there are two ways that things can go here. You can be with the nine. Look, as as they were going, all ten of them, as they were going to their priests, something was happening and they realized they were being healed. I don't know if they felt like a tingling in their skin or something or another, but maybe they were looking at themselves and they see the discoloration from leprosy starting to fade. Maybe they see all the welts and the open sores in their body beginning to be filled up and healed. And they they realize what's happening. They realize they are being healed. And it's like, oh my gosh, as I'm going to the temple, I'm being healed. And they're like starting to jog and then they're like starting to run and maybe scream at the top of their lungs because they realize they're healed. They're like ripping their shirt off because their skin looks good again. They're running, running towards their temple. We could be like those nine where Jesus answers our prayer and we want to go and get our lives back. But then you know what happens? We don't come back to Jesus. We just move on to the next prayer request. We just go on with our lives. Next time something bad happens, Master, Jesus, have mercy on me. He heals me. Oh, awesome. Go back to our lives. Master, the cycle over and over and over again. That's what the nine are like. That's what it looks like when we constantly pray to God, asking him to do something, to heal me, to heal my children, to help me with my job, to help me with his exam, to give me more money. And we ask God for these things over and over again, but we hardly spend any time thanking him when he answers prayer, if we thank him at all. That's like the nine. But there was one person, one person who, while he was going to the temple, he turned back. He turned back. He didn't get to the temple. Something happened in this man where when he realized he was being cleansed and he realized he was healed and cleansed, he was so overcome by what Jesus had done for him that he turned back. Brothers and sisters, he didn't care about going to the temple or some 
stinking priest or whatever. He didn't care about any of that. He wanted to go back to Jesus. What he cared about was knowing this man who healed him and being in relationship with Jesus. Maybe it had to do with the fact that how could, I mean, if I were Jesus, I would have healed the Jews. But he healed me? A Samaritan? Why would he do that? And he runs to Jesus filled with thanksgiving in his heart for what Jesus has done for him. Brothers and sisters, he didn't care about being declared clean by a priest. He wanted to be in relationship with Jesus. The other nine wanted their old lives back. And you know what? That's what they got. And that's it. Their old lives back. The one who went to Jesus got a new life. He got a relationship with Jesus. He got something so much more. This is why Jesus said in this last verse here, Jesus, and he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now this is subtle, but the word well here is different from the word healed that was used earlier when it says that they were healed. The word well here is a different Greek word. It's the word sozo. Some of you may be familiar with this word. It's not simply the word healed that was used earlier that is more about physical healing, healing of a malady, a physical condition. The word sozo means healed, but it's something more holistic, something more complete. It, is, it, is, it means made well. It means saved. It is far more comprehensive. Something far more comprehensive happened in the life of this person because he came to Jesus because he recognized the depths of where he was. A leper, not just a leper, but a Samaritan leper. Why would you heal me? Why would you do that? He was so overcome with thanksgiving that it led him back to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, your faith has made you sozo, whole and complete, not just healed. Something so much more. Brothers and sisters, do you just want God to answer your prayers and give you the things that you want? Or do you want something more than that? Do you want more than that? Do you want him just to save you from a bad boss and save you from your bank account and save you from, from kids that are going driving you crazy? Or do you want him to save you from an existence that is without him? Do you want him to save you from a life that is lukewarm, that is without purpose or direction? Brothers and sisters, thanksgiving, recognizing who he was, truly recognizing that, brought him to a place of such incredible gratitude 
And that gratitude brought him into a closer place of relationship with Jesus. When we look at Jesus versus the temple, everybody who ran to the temple, every one of them, they were all healed. But only one, only the person who ran towards Jesus, who turned back, was saved. Which one do you want to be? You know, when I became a Christian in high school, on that day when I said yes to Jesus, I am a sinner. I need the cross for my forgiveness. I receive you as my God, my Lord, and my Savior. That day when I said yes, when I went up to the front of the altar call after the speaker finished speaking, when I went into that back room with counselors and, and with a bunch of other young people who became Christians that day, and I was crying my eyes out, snot flowing down my face, an ill-equipped counselor not knowing what to do or say to me, that snotty, crying mess. The thing that I kept saying in my heart over and over again is, God, is Jesus, why would you die for me? Why would you die for me? I felt it so deep that day. So deep, this sense, I did not deserve this. Why would you send your own son? Why would your son go through that on the cross? Why would you give your life for me? I deserve none of it. Why would you do that? I had such a sense that I didn't deserve anything. God's grace filled my heart. And when I understood that, all that could pour out was thanksgiving. And I'll tell you, I felt so close with God, so intimate that day. It's an intimacy that, to be honest with you, I don't feel that often. I've been a Christian for over 20 years now, but I don't feel it that often like that day. Something happened that day, and yes, it was the day I got saved. Yes, I understand all that, but it was rooted in understanding my depravity who God was saving. Why would you save me? And that understanding resulted in such deep gratitude that drew me into intimacy and closeness with Christ. Brothers and sisters, uh, I want to exhort you. How do we become more thankful people? We dwell upon the cross, who we truly are. Amazing grace. Why would God save a wretch such as I? When we understand that and go back to the cross, our response can only be thanksgiving. Not entitlement, but thanksgiving. And that produces heartfelt passion to pursue God that is not legalistic, that is not a, like a part-time lover, that is not entitled, that is not bitter, but is thankful no matter what we experience that can say, I never made 
a sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, will you praise God with loud voice? Not just crying out to God in loud voice when you need something, but will you praise God with loud voice because of what we receive? Will you praise God with loud voice every time he blesses you with his grace? in an answer to prayer.